From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new FPNA podcast. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by DataRails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we will welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FPNA. We will provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis today. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FPNA. Today, I have with me Ken Fick, and I just like to tell you a little bit about him before I give him a chance to introduce himself. So Ken and I met, well, virtually about six years ago. I was looking for a job, and I'd reached out to Ken. I said, hey, Ken, can I get some career advice? I'll, uh, I think I offered him a Starbucks gift card. And he responded back and said, no, nah, I don't want your gift card, but will you write an article for me? And my first thought was, I'm a terrible writer. This guy doesn't know what he's asking for. And so I said, sure, I'll write you an article. And he published it on his website. I think it was Pierce the, Pierce the Fog at that time. And uh, so I wrote one on BI. And then he's like, hey, would you write some more? And I'm like, wow, this guy, I don't know what he's thinking. But sure, I'll write a couple more. And wrote a couple and actually started to enjoy it. And it kind of built from there. And so often I tell people is, Ken, help me on my path toward where I am today and got me involved in posting and writing about FP&A. So I'm thrilled to have him on the show today. And I'm grateful for what he's uh, helped me start. So Ken, thanks for being on the show. Welcome. Well, thanks, Paul. And and thank you for writing those articles. And even attributing a tiny part of your great success to me is is a real, real honor. So I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Well, maybe could you start by just, you know, telling us a little bit about your background, maybe a little bit about your career and how did you end up where you're at today? Sure. I think in a person's life and in their career, it's more of a, a random walk, at least the most interesting people I know. It's never a straight line. It's more of a random walk. And I, my career, my life is really uh, is example of that. So out of undergrad, had an accounting degree and end up, uh, my father was in FP&A for 40 some years uh, at Fisher Price in Buffalo, New York. And, you know, he really, because he, he regretted not getting a CPA. So uh, I actually went and sat for the exam, became a CPA, but I actually have never worked in public accounting, nor would I, nor would I ever want to sign a financial statement. I don't think <laughs> I am the guy that you want doing that, but uh, end up uh, working for a couple of Fortune 500 companies down in Richmond, Virginia, first circuit city, uh, which was profitable in the late 90s, just so you know, it did go bankrupt then. And, uh, and then uh, Capital One, and then went to get my MBA at the College of William Mary. And then from there, I guess I really started my career. I went into uh, a company called FTI Consulting. And they do forensic litigation, corporate structuring work. And I did that for about seven years or a director. And then I, I went and did a bunch of just really fun things, I guess, different things. So I, I was a, a, did a short stint in Fannie Mae in the economics department uh, just as a contractor. But I worked uh, there working with some of the best minds uh, during the time, 2010, basically, when Fannie Mae owned a majority of the houses due to the financial crisis and, and worked with them for a variety of things. Uh, I've been a CFO, a head of FP&A for a large company, uh, ran a uh, mortgage compliance consulting firm for a bit of time, uh, and then eventually led me to uh, several FP&A roles. And right now, I'm the VP of FP&A at Citroen Cooperman, which is a $350 million accounting, tax, and advisory firm based in New York City. I am very happy. I just started that earlier this year. 
Uh, the people are great. The company's great. And I, I'm really excited. Well, good. Well, thanks for sharing. It sounds like, you know, quite the adventure and different uh, experiences throughout your your path. And I like how you say it's often a kind of a random walk, as we say, you know, very few people have this structured ladder and they just climb it. So I you can definitely see that. So I remember you mentioning you started your career at Circuit City back when they were profitable, when they were <laughs> still making money. And if I remember right, you started in a rotational program where you had several different roles. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that experience? What were some of the benefits of seeing the different areas of finance early in your career? Yeah, I highly encourage uh, anyone, anybody in their undergrad, getting into some type of rotational program at a, a, at a company because it exposes you to different departments and different things. And you don't necessarily know what you want to fully do. At least I, I didn't when I came out of undergrad, right? I mean, I, a lot of people get degrees and they're getting, we're getting better at it. But when you're in your 20s, you know, you have a general idea, but people change many times these days. And that, that's, that's perfectly fine. So my first rotation was an internal audit at Circuit City. Then I was a supervisor in their uh, their bank. This uh, Circuit City actually owned a credit card bank, as many retailers did back then, which is incredibly profitable. Uh, I was there for a while and then ended up in strategic planning, which I wanted to be in, in anyways, and did that for a, a little while there too. And what's neat about that is, well, it opened my eyes, actually. The first position, you know, opened my eyes in regards to what management or what businesses or companies leadership um, need. Because, you know, here I'm, I'm like, you know, a, 20 something years old and you know i'm an internal audit and this is a 10 billion dollar company you know what am i going to tell i'm just learning what, what you know what are they what am i going to tell what advice long story short is that you know tom dick and harry was running the place and they were taking advice from a 20 something year old kid uh, and, and whatever it was i'm like holy moly <laughs> you know is it you know now again they went bankrupt so obviously that probably wasn't a good idea but um, it, it learned to, you know, at the time I learned a lot about how businesses run and it's not as hierarchical or structured as you think. Uh, one of the things I think you've heard me say before is I believe that most companies make money in spite of themselves. Um, it, the disorganization, the data, the, the, the whole bunch of series of problems and fires you're dealing with is it, just amazing. And it's one of the things I love FPNA because I get to, to try to put clarity around that focus and also predict it for the future. No, I, I love that last part you said about enjoying the fact you get to put clarity around the process, around the the mess that is often there, right? We've all seen it every company and I couldn't agree more. We make money despite ourselves and it's sometimes mm -hmm. amazing to go, we're making how much profit? And <laughs> right. internally we're looking at things going, it feels this dysfunctional? Mm -hmm. this, th this can't be the case, especially when you first start your career. You start going to another company, another company, you start realizing, oh, I guess this is how corporate America works. Right. The grass isn't greener. I mean, I, I think, you know, we initially get illusioned that, oh, it's going to be different at this company or this company. It is exactly the same. And in consulting, as director of strategy and transformation for a uh, Morgan Franklin, which is a mid-sized consulting firm here. And every time, ever all of my clients, oh, you know, we're different. We're, you know, it's not that, you know, we're, we're horrible. No. You're all the same, <laughs> you know. You, everyone, everyone has bad data or messed up data. There's just degrees of gray of of how good or bad you are. No, that's true. I will kind of funny story to that about how messy data is. Um, I had a friend who started at a place I worked with, and I told him, "I go, our CRM is a mess." And oh, I've seen it all. He's coming from consulting, and it's about three days into the job, and he calls me. He goes, "You didn't tell me it was this bad." 
<laughs> yep. yep. Like, okay, that validates we are a mess. But I just laughed and said, no, no, I did. I tried to warn you what you're getting <laughs> yeah. into. So, yeah. you know, it's just, it, it's how it is. There's always, always challenges. So you run your own website. I know you used to run your own practice for a while called fpnaexperts.com. Can you share a little bit of how you got started with that? Tell a little bit about, you know, the website and what you hope people would take away from it. Well, I actually, I got started in writing um, when I was at FTI Consulting and actually published an article in the Journal of Accountancy. And, you know, I did a lot of research and it was, it was really interesting, fascinating to me. And so I, I continued writing for other people in other places. And I'm like, well, why am I, why don't I just, I have some ideas. Why don't I just start writing for myself as well, too? Because people are asking me questions. And, and a lot of times it's just easier for me to say, hey, here, go to this website. You want to look at this article or this thing that I wrote, you know, you, you, in order to, to, to learn more and, and explain things. So I've ended up writing about 30 different blog posts there. I haven't really focused on in the past couple of years, but I did I did it because when I was independent, I was an independent consultant too uh, for a, a period of time. And, um, you know, that that was going to be a, a focus of working on it. I just ended up getting so busy. And unfortunately, as a it, in consulting is feast or famine. And, you know, I was so busy, I didn't have time to build it. <laughs> um, but it, it gave me a platform where... I don't have to be censored by anybody else, by any editor or whatever. And it's not that there's anything controversial in it, but I, there was one article I wrote um, explaining FP&A to uh, a person at a, at a cocktail party. And it's just, you know, it's a simple thing, but actually that was probably, that is still probably my most popular piece uh, on the website. And it's uh, fascinating how just simple it was. No, I, I actually remember reading that piece. I think that's one of the first things I read when I went to your website. I'm going, I'll be interested to see how he describes it. So maybe talk to a little bit about that, how would you describe FP&A to somebody at a cocktail party? Well, it, you know, most people aren't finance people. I mean, that's just either lawyers, doctor, whatever. So you say, oh, I'm in a financial planning analysis and, and at, a, at X, Y, and Z company. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, I have an investment guy that does all my stuff. Like, yeah, I, I don't really do anything with stocks. Uh, <laughs> you know, I focus on a company. Oh, okay. So, so you know, you, you kind of, you, you know, you're the guy that closes the books and uh, cuts costs. No, not really. No, I'm not that guy either. <laughs> you know, um, you know, it's a series of really discovering um, of what FP&A is. And FP&A, I believe, in any company, is it's both reporting and analysis. So it's it's answering questions for leadership that they may not have thought of to begin with, and providing insight into their business that they may not have on a regular basis. So one of the things I'm doing right now for this, for the company that I joined, they were just purchased, uh, Citrin Cooper was purchased by a private equity firm called New Mountain Capital. Mm -hmm. And the business was run completely on a cash basis, uh, which is still a little shocking to me. Wait, $350 million on a cash basis? Yep. And it, it, it's amazed me how many, I didn't know this, but as we are requiring different accounting practices, and a lot of them work on a cash basis. I, I just, I was shocked. <laughs> yeah. So, Yeah. So we're, we're doing accrual-based accounting now. I mean, we are accountants, so that should be straightforward. And, you know, there's things that, on a cash basis that, you know, you focus on, cash in the door, receivables, on, that and on accrual-based with revenue and expenses, cash is important. You have a cash flow statement, of course, but, you know, it, it's a different, the revenue is different from cash to, cash to obviously, accrual. And what drives those numbers slightly is slightly different and we're working through both reporting to our private equity owners but also in leadership and saying these are the metrics that drive ebitda and this is what we need to to focus on to drive profitability that's fascinating when think of a company you know quite that big you definitely see companies you know i worked on a project 
with one of the companies that, but you know, it was small size where they're still on a cash basis or obviously running your own business, right? You run it on a cash basis till you hit a certain size. It's just too much. It's not worth the effort, but that, that size, that's surprising. Interesting. So um, switching kind of gears here a little bit, going back to some of the articles you've written, one article you wrote over the years is that you had on your website is the overlook skills for FPNA. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what those skills are and why you think they are overlooked? Um, I think a lot of times, especially people younger in their career, focus on the technical. And I agree that you get a job because of the technical uh, and that that's important. But as you continue on, even, even, even at a very early stage in your career, the focus needs to shift more communication and the story. And, you know, we, we sometimes get um, uh, too focused on wanting the numbers to reconcile and working the numbers and using different tools and less on what information are we trying to convey? So for example, right now, our reporting package for Citroen Cooperman that I'm working on, it's a great reporting package, but it's very data intensive and not a ton of insight. So as a private equity owner, a lot of things that they're looking for that I've, I've learned through the years is, okay, I understand that things could be good or bad. I mean, nothing's bad, but um, the numbers could show a trend. It's not that they're worried about that trend. They just want to know that you know about it and that, that management is has a plan to deal with it. And that requires storytelling. And that requires, you know, putting together, <laughs> we don't like PowerPoint, but you have to get good at PowerPoint. You have to understand, and because at least presentation requires you to think about how your data and your information can turn into actions via insight. And then on top of that, you... Most typically, in most FPA organizations, you do not have power. Your power is purely influential. So you, don't, you can't say, cut this cost or grow this or do that. You, you have to inform the leadership, and they're the ones that take action. So it's influence. Uh, and I think those are, there's a couple of skills, storytelling and, and, and learning to influence others that uh, I, I typically, at least earlier on, are overlooked, but I think become very critical very quickly. No, thank you. I appreciate that. And I, you know, I agree with you that early in the career, they're often overlooked, right? As I've once heard it said, and it's always kind of stuck with me, technical skills will get you your first job. Those soft or non-technical skills, the communication, the influencing, the storytelling, the leadership will get you promoted. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, and I think that that's kind of what you're getting at. And I also love the part where you said, you know, providing actionable insight, right? We've all, we've all been there. I remember one guy was telling me where he joined a company and he saw they were giving, I think it was uh, something like a 60 page deck to 17 executives every month. Mm-hmm. And he went around with his controller to every single one of them. And they found one of the 17 had actually was using one page of it. And the first thing he did, he's like, we're done. Like we don't yeah. need to, we're not a data dump organization. We're here to provide data that drives insights, that provides value. Because as you said, our value comes from influencing, not from running things. Right. It's action. When I do a, I do a presentation uh, several times now for scenario planning, which has become very popular given the COVID-19. <laughs> yep. uh, one of the, the nodes that I have in a five node a diagram is um, what, what triggers so like, let's say, you know, your revenue gets hit and it goes down 20%, like we did for COVID, 20, 30, 50% within one month. Well, what do you do? And you don't have to necessarily have all the answers, but if you run a scenario analysis, you're like, okay, well, who do we cut first? And how do we, what do we do next? A lot of restaurants unfortunately failed because of COVID because they 
didn't have a plan to pivot to takeout. And they some just couldn't couldn't do it. I mean, the, the, I think now we're we're well into this, and there there I imagine for many restaurants there is a really robust takeout business now in addition to dining. Yeah, I mean, I, at least for my family, we used to eat out two or three times a week. We don't, but we do order out and bring it home um, that often, and we kind of enjoy it better, to be honest with you. And, and that pivoting, that plan to take a series of actions based off of insight in the data. I think is what drives performance in a company. And that's what we're looking for, for make our customers happy, to make our investors money and us to have a fulfilling life. No, that all makes sense. And I, I totally agree with you. Scenario planning became huge and a lot of companies suffered because of lack of scenario planning and lack of cash planning, right? Mm-hmm. Those, yeah, those were magnified, I don't know, 10, 20 times, you know, beginning of COVID. I know they became a huge issue for us and we had to all of a sudden run a bunch of different scenarios and just kind of scramble to, to figure things out. I think everybody, you know, struggled through that period. Very few companies were really prepared for it. Some, their industries were better positioned to handle it, but I don't know that many companies had really saw that coming, right? What's interesting too, is that now we're on the flip side of that. So that was all on the downside. Now in the U.S. economy, we're booming. I mean, even now, there's just not enough, physically not enough people. And we're trying to, to remedy that. And there's also supply chains. I mean, there's still boats. I, I live uh, um, near the Chesapeake Bay, which is a big um, inroad for, for ships importing the U.S. And it's, it's packed. Um, and the West, and the, even, even we've worked through some of these delays in California. Logistics, a big thing, too. So what happens when your demand skyrockets and you're not able to hit it? And is it, is it even profitable? So car uh, auto manufacturers, can't deliver cars because of a microchip. You know what I mean? Like, well, they're holding up gigantic profits because of one piece, you know? And, and I understand why if someone wouldn't buy it, I understand why they would be asking to selling it. But, you know, now they can't, it's harder for them to capture that profitability, that demand, or, and even outflank their competitors, right? Everybody's in the same situation. Um, even to the point, just chaos. Um, I forgot what it was. There was a, a ship that was headed to the port of Baltimore and a bunch of high-end custom luxury cars. I don't know if they were Jaguars or Land Rovers. I don't know what they were. Long story short, it caught on fire. Yeah, I heard about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's sank. I mean, it's horrible. I'm, I'm sorry it happened. But I'm like, well, imagine that. Imagine if you have a custom, I don't know, what's a really expensive? Maybach? Lamborghini, I Bergatti, Lamborghini. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure they don't make a Lamborghini on a, you know, for, they don't, they're very customized. I'm guessing. I just imagine they're not pushing these things out the door, you know, like 500 a day. So now, now you get back to the drawing board. So great. You have insurance money. Well, you just, you know, your customer, right. is not getting their Lamborghini as, as they wanted it. And they're going to have to wait probably another year in order to get whatever it is, or they buy it used or, or whatever. I mean, that's a, a supply chain track. It's a scenario. It's planning. What if, right. And I think that's great about the FP&A profession is you're naturally curious and in a company, um, as account would focus on the past, you can focus on the what if, and you can focus on the possibility. And I, I just enjoy that. No, I do too. It's it's always fun to kind of see the what if and what a company can accomplish. How do you, you know, how do you better deploy that capital to grow the business? You know, and that's one thing we have to we we need to be aware of as uh, an FP&A. We're do, we're providing forecasts and running scenarios, but we are not providing predictions. A prediction has, uh, underlies the fact that, you, that there's nothing you can do to change the future, that it's, it, it is inevitable. Um, and that's, not, that's just not true. I mean, a forecast implies that 
you know, you're giving them information based on what the where the wind is blowing right now. And your the management is to take action to derive the future that they want from that. Um, so the, by an FPNA, the natural thing is you want you don't want your forecast or budget to come true. You want it to be better than that. You want actions uh, that you can take and, and the management can take to change the outcome to a outcome that they want or that that you're you're seeking. And that art of the possible is just uh, something I've I've done for many companies. I, I did in consulting. It's elusive. It's difficult because it's very qualitative, not quantitative. Uh, but I found the companies that are able to develop those plans like that uh, and understanding is are the ones that achieve the, the, the most success. I love that how you said it's about you know the, the the art of the possible, and it's not about hitting the budget. The goal is to exceed it, and it's to help guide the business, right? You know, you hear the term a lot nowadays of finance should be looked at as a value creation. And if all we're doing is predicting, then we're not adding value, right? The value creation goes comes in and analyzing that data and finding something that's an actionable insight that you can help drive to improve top line, bottom line, the whatever piece it may be of the overall portfolio of the company. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing you mentioned too, which is we get uh, focused on is very much revenue, but you mentioned expense and it's the allocation of capital. So in my business right now, um, it's not unusual for professional services. Our cost of revenue, our cost of goods sold, our salary. I mean, that's you know we're a services firm. That's what we do. But when you think about it, how do you, you know, we for this business is highly seasonal. So we have a very big tax season, and then we have a, a big audit season, right? But yeah, I mean, it's, that's that's common. Well, you don't have enough people going into April. Okay, then you die down. You have too many people. Do you let these people go? That doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? You need them for later on, but it's the matching of the expense with the revenue, matching of the capital outlay to the revenue earned. It's a, a difficult game and th- there's trade-offs. And that provides a great deal of uh, profitability, efficiency, um, and growth for a company and especially in a booming market. No, that that makes sense. And I could see that. And I talk about matching it. I can see in a se- very seasonal business like that mm-hmm. where you have- yeah those peaks and valleys, how important that is to match it and to make sure you you staff appropriately and you figure out how to, you know, keep the staff with, because you can't lose them all. You can't no. Be, all right, we'll have you for these three months and then, hey, come back in three months, right? doesn't work well, that and way. You have to, and you have to have them motivated. So what do they do for the three or four months that there's downtime or do they cross between tax and audit and consulting? Some of them can, some of them can't. Um, you know, and then also you don't want to burning out. I mean, I, one thing that we're dealing with which is interesting is, is burnout. I mean, these people are, are doing loads of hours are required to work weekends to get the, the tax returns out and so on. Okay. Now, you know, you, you breathe. <laughs> it's a couple <laughs> weeks after tax uh, season here and like, okay, well, if they reevaluate themselves, like, do I want to do this again? Maybe we'll just leave. And I want to be in public accounting anymore. And you need to keep them motivated, interested and uh, effective in the slower periods because you know, the, demand is going to be coming up later on. Right. Uh, and you know, they don't, as a, it's a very qualitative thing. It's a very career thing. It's a very personal thing. And that's one reason with COVID, I'm really happy that we've become as a country more flexible and to work remotely 
And I love the idea that it doesn't matter. Like my company is based in New York City. My office technically is New York City and Rockefeller Center. I live in Annapolis, Maryland. I didn't even see them. And I have yet to see my boss in person, see on video calls. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I woke up to New York City, but they don't care if I'm in New York City or not. (laughs) You know, and I think that is something that as an FP&A professional is great, but it changed the game in regards to matching the resource or the expense with that revenue of where it needed to be. And the efficiency is and the effectiveness is, is just the same, if not better. Because I don't know about you, Paul, but like, I mean, I, if I don't have to boot, if I don't turn off my computer, so all right, I'll go eat dinner. Oh, I'll just do an email and I'll come back. It's like two hours later. It's like 10 o'clock, you know, and, and, and like, oh, I never, because I, I never, I, mean, I never turn off my computer, right? It's always on. So it's only a quick thing. Well, when I go into office, I literally shut down my computer, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but that's what I do and put in my backpack and head out in the car or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to boot it back up again, <laughs> you know, when I get home. Um, so I, I definitely work more now than I did previously. No, I, I think a lot of people do, right? One, they're not commuting when you're working from home. And two, like you said, it's easier to just, oh, you hear the email or you go check your computer real quick and then you find yourself working for a while before you know it. So I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You also get some flexibility that you didn't have before. I'm going to run out and do this, Aaron. I'm going to run out and do that. Yeah, exactly. And it allows everybody to kind of have that flexibility they need with these hybrid and remote and these changes we're seeing. So I know you're fairly new at your company, but I'm curious, you know, where you're at today. How do you guys think about performing your budget and your forecast? What's kind of your process for for budgeting and forecasting? Are you doing rolling forecasts, beyond budgeting? You know, what's what's kind of the way you guys think about it? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually developing a plan for a for, for budget for this this year, which will probably kick off in about August, September timeframe. But I want to actually talk a little bit about my previous employer, um, Berkeley Research Group, and it's a great company. But it was fascinating on the fact that they didn't need an FP&A person. Um, <laughs> and I was hired into it. The, so went through a whole budgeting process, and the CEO is a great guy. He comes in, that's great, but this is my model, and this is what we're doing. I'm like, oh, oh, okay, well, why, why did you even ask? <laughs> you know? So actually, you know, it's been three months, you know, building a model and talking to people, and at the end of the day, it was it was his model, and we just set targets. And I'm like, oh, that's again, I, there's nothing, there's nothing good or bad about that. It's just that, you know, it, it, intrinsically, obviously, there's less buy-in and so on. So they didn't have a budgeting process. They have anything else like that. Most typically, that's not how companies should work or do work. And, um, you know, what I think that I'm going to put it on here is we will have, I'm still a big fan of, of regular budgeting. So that means a 12 month calendar you plan for for the next year, but then you have frequent reforecasts within the budget because the budget sets the measuring stick as to where we wanted to be. And it provides investors information and so on as of a point in time. And I, I love the idea of rolling forecasts in 12 to 18 months. That, don't worry, that's great. I just like doing an actual budget first, at least once a year, and then adjusting that because the budgeting process requires a lot of time from management and people in the lower levels to think about their business. And I think with a, with a, if a forecast is um, sent out or done too frequently, you're doing less thinking and more robotic automation and putting in data. And with a budgeting process, I intend to review the performance of each of the divisions, departments, and so on, sit with them. And just ask them about their business. What do they think? You know, what are they seeing? You know, and, and you get a lot of the, the good information um, for management and for yourself of how to model the business, where the business is going, and how to achieve their goals. And a lot of budgeting is just listening. It's just listening. 
Um, and then, you know, putting together a plan and a plan requires thought, just like we talked before about communications, right? Communication is you have to sit there and think, what story do I want to convey? And you have to do that at the department level, the division level, whatever, to, uh, to show that I, I have, I have this under control. Like, let's say, um, one of our divisions is, I don't know, um, tax. Okay. So who, whoever's heading tax, you know, well, you know, uh, looking at your business, I know you're going to be busy in, in April, but you know, what else is going to, what are you doing the rest of the year? Right. <laughs> and how are you going to manage your people, manage your staff, manage yourself, manage your time, manage your resources to ma- maintain effectiveness. And then do you actually intend to grow it? I mean, is there opportunity within this space? And if so, how, and are you working with marketing to, uh, to achieve your goals? Uh, and that insight from a leadership and investors is is very important. And when things change, and they will always change, and some people always be like, "Well, I don't know why we do a budget. It's, it it changes it changes the next day. It's useless." Well, it's it's useless. It's it's intentionally wrong. I mean, as we talked about before, it's intentionally wrong. It's a point in time where you have to focus on your business and what you're seeing and what you think is going to happen, and it could be influenced by statistics and I'm, I'm a big fan of that so what have you been, what is the seasonality of the business um I, do you want to do is it just a linear growth path is there you know fluctuations in it and so on and how how's it going to grow but in addition to that just you know all customers are different uh for everything uh and what do you see from your customers and how are they going to buy from you what channels are they going to use and these are all great questions that i think a budgeting process lays out and requires you to think about i should say uh, and then, you know, I, I love the, the you know, one plus, one plus 11, two plus uh, 10 and so on, going through those uh, as well, too, on a monthly basis, because that's how we report and, and accounting reports on a monthly basis. Uh, you know, you can manage it even better for us. We can get hours billed. So we actually can go down to individual weeks or days. But there's when you go down to a, a too fine of a granular detail with data, it's like, well, not everyone enters that during their time as they should, on, even though they're required to. So there's fuzzy data. And I think you've, Brian Lapidus uh, from the AFP <laughs> uh, likes using that, uh, the term that I, I use frequently is fuzzy data. And fuzzy data doesn't need to be perfect to be insightful and helpful. There's a lot to unpack there. First, uh, we actually had Brian on the show last week and did an interview with him. So we're looking forward to that when it's released. But, uh, you know, first, kind of the whole idea of fuzzy data, nobody gets 100, no data is 100% right. It has to be directionally correct and it has to be right enough to allow you to make good decisions because the cost to get to the, to that last percent or that next percent, each incremental percent gets more and more expensive. And at some point it's no longer worth it. So you just have to learn to operate in a little bit of a gray area. But second, I love that you talked about, you know, the planning process and I'm not a huge fan of budgeting, but you have to have some process target setting. You have to have that kind of annual, whenever it might be, beyond just a high-level rolling forecast. You really have to think about things. And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons you're passionate about budgets. And I think they do do that. They force you to spend a lot of time thinking about the business and planning. And that's where the real value comes from, is that process. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of listening that takes place. It's where you learn about the business more in depth. You'll learn about the needs. You know, often with the rolling forecast, especially if you're doing kind of R&Os, risks and outlooks and things like that, you don't get that level of depth. You don't get the level of thinking. So I agree with you that that process really does help with that thinking and planning so that you're prepared to go through the year. Not that you're not that you have a number that's going to be right. Because, you know, if I if I could predict 
what companies were going to do at 100%, I'd be at the stock market right now. I wouldn't oh be gosh, working right? as a planner. You know, yeah. I wouldn't be doing the career yeah. I'm doing. And I, I think I've told you before, I, I'm a horrible at it. Like, I mean, just in finance, you're frequently given or, or have privileged information on finance. I've never done this. But if I, you know, sometimes I jot on a post-it note, you know, God, I should buy now. Or, you know what I mean? Or it's hell now. Every time when I've done that, I have been disasterly wrong. Like, you know, oh, we're going to have a we're going to have a blowout, you know, revenue numbers. And then we're going to report to the, they report to the street and we missed it by a penny or I don't know what it, and it tanks. And I would, I would have lost money, you know? Um, it's, it's, I, I, yeah, predicting the stock market or anything like that is, is, is challenging to say the least. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's about planning. It's a process and a discipline. It's not about being right. Well, it's also about aligning too. So one thing I find yes. with budgeting is aligning the operating plan with a strategic plan. And um, they're not always like, we have, most companies have like a five-year plan or whatever. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> it has to actually, how are you going to achieve that? And you have to make sure those targets are in place and that you're telling your people. Um, the, some of the worst budgeting process that I've been through with companies is where they actually, they don't tell the, the team, they don't say, well, just give us about it the best you can do, which is the worst thing to say. And that means, you know, it's all, you know, horse trading. And then, Lo and behold, the business produces a number to the board. It's it's why. Well, we think what we were thinking it's going to be Z. Why the hell did you say that? <laughs> okay, so that's fine. Then you have to go back again and like, oh, these are the targets we need to at least achieve. And then you get it just delays everything, right? I mean, and the best is when you can align that to a larger plan to what the business is trying to to achieve, and then you set out reasonable targets. Uh, is usually the best alignment and best resource allocation as you had mentioned before. No, I, I agree. That the whole alignment in addition to planning is being able to align from your strategic down to your operational. Because if you're not careful, they get disconnected in a hurry. And that causes all kinds of problems when you have finance planning in a silo, which I'm sure we've all seen. I know I've seen it where, well, we didn't sign up for that number. Where'd that come from? Right. I don't own it. Just Yeah, it just becomes a big mess because nobody wants to own the number. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I want to just talk a little bit more about fuzzy data as well, too. And, and ownership of the data. And you're always going to have some people, whenever you do a presentation, say, well, that's not the number I saw, or that's not the number it is. I'm like, okay, well, what, what it, whatever it is, whatever the quote unquote right number is, what are we trying to achieve? And a lot of times I see people with fuzzy data um, at Circuit City. We had um, counters, people, you know, see so counted the number of people coming in a store and left the store and they were, they were horribly bad. I mean, because someone put a box in front of it or whatever, and, you know, you'd have, you know, 700 people go in and two people leave, which is clearly wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, among things like that, but not all of it was bad. A lot of it was really good information and it, it helped to explain and manage the business, but you had to, you had to call through the data. And then, you know, and then there was, there was always um, at the senior leadership, like, well, that's never right. Well, no, it's not right. And certainly not for all of them and for a lot of them. But, you know, I was able to call that down to, let's say, about 100 stores of which we were getting great insight into uh, daily fluctuations of, of, uh, of people coming in and out of a store and why and, and adjusted our hours and adjusted uh, our planograms accordingly because people coming in, let's say, on a Sunday are different than people coming in uh, in the afternoon on a weekday or at, after 5 p.m., um, you know, later in the week. And they're mm -hmm. looking for different things generally. And that was extremely insightful. So don't throw the baby out with the bath oil. With a, uh, well, I think it's yeah, not bath oil, bath. Water. <laughs> Dirty water. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. 
I hadn't heard that. I'm going to have to remember that one. The bath oil. I'll try to find a way to use that. <laughs> that wasn't even close to right. Sorry. <laughs> totally fine. But, you know, that's a great point about so often they're like, well, the data is bad. It's like, well, there are problems with the data. That doesn't mean the data is bad. You don't just throw it all away. Like you said, you can often cull good information out of less, I should say, imperfect data because it's never going to be perfect. You can still get good insights. If you wait for perfect data, you'll never make a decision. Well, and that's when I I was working on a accounting to FP&A guide for the Association AFP, Association of Financial Professionals with Brian. Um, And that's one of the hurdles that we see in the FP&A world of people in accounting wanting to to move into FP&A. And, you know, FP&A, we, we generally don't reconcile. I mean, we, we do reconcile things. But one thing about accounting, it's nice. We're very structured. There's debits and credits. You know what I mean? And, and you know when it's done or not done. There's accruals. There's, there's stuff in there as well, too. But generally, we try to, to tie things. Um, and in FP&A, you have to release that. And that's a starting point. But, you know, you, the future doesn't tie to the past. It, it may rhyme. <laughs> you know, just like history, right? History, it never, you know, never want to repeat history, but it certainly does rhyme. It's certainly similar, right? Um, when you look mm-hmm. at geopolitics and stuff like that, unfortunately, we're going through war, uh, you know, right now, and, and the poor people in Ukraine. <laughs> it's like, well, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds very similar to things we've already seen before in other wars. And it's unfortunate, but, you know, it, it rhymes. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So a couple more questions here. I know we're, We've been going for about 40 minutes, but uh, just have a little more time here with you. What would you say is one of the achievements in your career that you're most proud of? Maybe something you would give in a job interview. What am I most proud of? I guess I'd say it is an actual achievement. The reason this is a kind of a hard question is typically I measure my performance based on the results of others, of what I help them achieve and what, what I what they were able to to do to do or what I helped them to do or what I uh, train them to do. Well, what's something um, you could even if maybe something you're proud of that you help somebody, you help the team achieve, not even yeah. necessarily yourself, because th- that's often very rewarding in itself. I, I think some of the uh, biggest achievements that I've had in my career is um, and nothing specific, but in div- individual projects. Like one thing that I think was fascinating is that uh, when I was working in that contract position at uh, Fannie Mae in the economics unit, is they they had the largest, they were the largest homeowner in the U.S. I think I mentioned that. Uh, and how do you dribble out houses, let's say in Detroit, when the house prices are dependent on what was already sold? So if you put a whole bunch of houses on the market in Detroit at the exact same time, you're going to tank prices. It's just there's too much supply and demand. So how do you, what is the, but Fannie Mae still needed to get rid of these houses, you know, I mean, they, you know, um, and so how do you, what is the right number to put what houses in what markets, in what areas um, on the market uh, at the right time to not downwardly impact price, right? And how long is that going to take? And at the time, you were using things that were fascinating, like Google Trends. And that's now it's common, but we were looking at, you know, searches on Google and on the different geographic areas. And that was informing the data, the economists in regards to what to do. And did I specifically do anything or achieve anything? Um, no, there was, that was definitely all of that, but I was a part of that and I found it fascinating. I found it helpful. It was insightful. And, and in a way, I guess I, I was minorly influenced the, the financial well-being 
of a lot of people <laughs> by by not you know by helping them work through that problem and not do something that is would be inherently overreaction again you know uh, selling all the houses at once uh, and making an informed choice and that's one reason I think I, I when I look at bad management of any company one of the things that I, I look for is universal cuts so let's say you know, revenue is down. Well, everybody, every department, everyone has to t- has to cut their their headcount of the cost by ten percent. The peanut butter spread. That person is clearly a moron. I mean, I'm I'm sorry, but if that is coming from the CEO of a company, you you need to move <laughs> because that is never the right answer. And you especially for accounting, you know. You, you can't, how do you, what is, just because you lost 20% of your revenue, doesn't, the, the transactions may have gone down, but doesn't mean you still need to close the, you still need to close the book. There's, there's things you just, there's, there's um, a fixed price. You know, there's a, a, a platform that you, you, you need to maintain. And there's also areas that you should invest in that you're cutting, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and, it's the worst thing. And you have to think about it. And, um, you know, that's, I guess, one of the things that I've learned in my life is that's that's a huge red flag to me whenever I hear about that in, in a public company or a private company, um, you know, in, in any type of planning and anything else like that. That's usually the worst decision. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I remember, you know, early on in COVID, we were given targets as businesses. Hey, you got to see achieve this in savings. Revenue is down. And we went through strategically and said, OK, what's the impact if we do this to this group? And some groups there were people we, you know, unfortunately had to lay off. In other groups, we put people on four-day work weeks, right? We we looked at each of our different teams, whether it was account management or call center or operations, and said, what's the right thing to do here? And left it up to the managers, rolled it all up and said, okay, now we need to do a little bit more to get to this number. What's the next steps? And I remember you know, how stressful it was, but we really tried to balance what's best for the business and how do we help our people versus just, all right, just cut everything and let's move forward, right? That never turns out well. No. And what's interesting, you see that, I, I talked about the war in Ukraine for a second, and you see that with the two opposing armies. Like, so I guess Ukraine has a lot of uh, the U.S. and NATO tr- training a lot previously, since the, the uh, Russia annexed Crimea and so on. And, and the, the U.S. military style is very autonomous units. And, you know, you're, you're, as an officer, you're given a goal, you know, take the city or whatever, but how you take the city is very, very open because one, you know, no plan has ever made it through execution, Um, you know, but it's planning is essential, right? Um, So you, you get there just like a finances analogy of war there, right? You land in the middle of Ukraine in a forest or whatever, whatever plan you had is wrong, (laughs) You know, you have an objective and you have a general idea of where you need to go. But that officer and those people, those men that are fighting this need to be extremely flexible uh, in, in achieving that. And you can't have a general sitting there yelling at, at you. It doesn't it doesn't work. You're not it, it works. I mean, you, you see it does it, but it's not effective. And there's a lot to say about that in, in a company. And that's really great that your company that you worked for when you went through that uh, did that because it's a very thoughtful way to do it. Yeah, no, I, I was I was appreciative for that, as challenging as it was, that we were able to figure it out ourselves and do what was best for the business. Yeah. So uh, next question here, this is kind of be a little more of a personal question, but we like to ask everybody this question. What's something that not many people know about you? Something they wouldn't find online, something they'd find interesting? <laughs> this is going to be funny. <laughs> so I guess I was a candle and giftware expert for uh, well through high school and part of college. Uh yeah, my parents owned a couple of franchises of a company called Wix and Sticks, which is no longer 
um, you know, around. But and we'd go to, to gift shows and so on. I helped them with buying and running the stores and so on. So, um, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I encourage it. Like when I look for to hire people, I look for people that have done some type of service business, either a waiter, or waitress, retail, because people are difficult. And I think actually we've gotten well, we've gotten better and worse I mean, post COVID and, and, and as a population. But it requires a great deal of finesse when you're dealing with the public, and it requires restraint. And you know, one thing that you that I find with people that have gone through that, and I, I like that as well too, um, is that they're not concerned about ego. They're less concerned about ego. Like, you know, uh, this whole thing, this whole Will Smith slapping thing. Well, you know, why, you know, why, why did he do that? Why did he feel he was disrespected? Who cares? I could, you know, I, my, my kids disrespect me <laughs> in some place. I mean, if, you ever, if you're a parent, you know, but how you react to that is what matters. Um, and in, in your career, um, you know, you will be quote unquote or feel slighted, disrespected, whatever you feel, whatever it is. The one thing to note is that that is your emotion. That is not somebody else's emotion. You choose to have that emotion. And when you're dealing with the public and you have that training, you're going to get exposed to that multiple times to to a degree of certain numbness. And I'm not saying I'm perfect, Paul. I mean, I, I've messed up many, many times. <laughs> we all um, have. But yeah, as, I, as I've gotten a, like, a little bit older in my career, I'll take out the garbage. You're paying me. I mean, I, I, I have no ego. I mean, you want to red ink this? That's great. Have fun. You know what I mean? It doesn't bother me in the least. No, I, I, I will always think of you now as the candle and giftware expert. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. No, I don't know anything about it now, though. That was like 25 years ago. So, story kind of funny. I'll tell this real quick. I know we're we're short on time, but so I used to do a servers for a lot of wedding receptions. I did them all the time. I worked at a place that did a ton of banquets, you know? And so I was sitting with my brother at a friend's wedding and we were both single. And I was probably in my late twenties at this point, maybe 30. And he was in his, you know, kind of mid to upper twenties. And we all of a sudden, he had worked at the same place for a couple of years. We found ourselves critiquing like the table settings and how everything was <laughs> yeah. laid out. And just two right. guys sitting, two single guys doing this. Yeah. And all of a sudden I turned to him, I'm like, what's wrong with us? What have yeah. we become? Right. You know, that we're sitting here picking apart the table settings and the decorations. And I just, we right. both worked so many of them. It was almost, you know, second nature. So that's what yeah. I thought of when you mentioned, you know, the candle and giftware expert. So <laughs> I didn't know that about you. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, well, probably then. not one many people know. And I just shared it with everybody. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> now everybody knows. So uh, last question here before we let you go. This is one we like to ask everybody. What's your favorite Excel function and why? Hmm. Well, I use the most frequent one I use is the same one that everyone else uses is VLOOKUP. But um, ones that I I I, my favorite are the uh, linear regression uh, estimates that you can in, in scatter plots and so on in those equations, because it, I think like now Excel has that forecast button, right? And it gives you that, which is a great, very quick analysis. But then if you dive in a little bit deeper, you could do a polynomial and a variety of other things to fit the curve. And uh, that's my, I, I, I don't use it as often as I'd like, but I, 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 that's my most favorite function. No, that's great. That's a great set of functions. I remember when I learned how to write all of them versus just having them chart yeah. themselves one time for a project and took mm -hmm. me a long time to figure out, oh, you can actually write every single one of those statistic yeah. functions right in the cell. And yeah. I built some dynamic things where I could dump in new data and see what was going on instead of, 
oh, I click this little button, it reruns every time. Now you just click the forecast button, right? They've made it a lot easier. But those are those are really valuable. I think uh, statistical analysis is underused in FPA. I agree. I agree with that as well too. And they, they think you know there's a lot of judgmental forecast, which is which is great. But I think statistical forecasting can inform the judgmental forecasting. Um, and unfortunately, I think as a, a we're not as good at math as we think we would we'd want to be, and that's one of the reasons. No, I would agree with that. And I know that's that's the case for me. And then also, I think the other challenge is finding good, clean data sometimes, especially if you're dealing with accounting data. That's always been my challenge. There's so many outliers because of accruals and things is trying to get it to the point where you actually find a correlation or something that's of value. Oh, absolutely. I agree with that. I know we're at the top of the hour, so we've used up our time here. But thank you so much for being on the show. Really enjoyed visiting with you, Ken. And we'll look forward to releasing this podcast here in the near future. Well, thank you for having me on, Paul. Uh, and, and enjoy talking to you and enjoy the FPNA profession. Call anytime. All right. Sounds good. Hey, you have a great day. Thanks again, Ken.